Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete, the podcast where I interview people who I really admire online and offline. At the heart of every conversation is how the internet has changed everything from our personal to professional lives. So today's guest is Tiffany Dark. She's someone I've admired for years and years. She was the editor of the Sunday Times Style magazine for 12 years and the Sunday Times Style is one of my favourite supplements so that's a pretty cool job that she had. Then she went on to being the creative content director at News UK and this year she's having a career change to work in TV in New York which is pretty much the most glamorous job change ever and she has a new book out. She's written books before. Her first novel was called Marrow and was translated in multiple languages and was shortlisted for the WH Smith Fresh Talent Award and her latest book is a non-fiction. It's called This Is 40, Whatever Happened to Generation X? It's a book about the generation that isn't millennials and it's not the baby boomers, it's the ones in between. It's kind of part memoir but also Tiffany interviews um, lots of iconic Gen Xers such as Pearl Lowe and the Blur bassist Alex James and June Sarpong and lots of other brilliant people. She also interviewed me as a token millennial voice in the book, uh, which was really fun to do. And yeah, I recommend you read it. It's a really interesting book. And I was so happy to get Tiffany on the podcast. As I said, she's a bit of a legend in the media industry and we had a good chat. So here's the episode and I hope you enjoy it. I'm a Tiffany Dark, my latest guest on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. We're going to talk about loads of things, but let's start off with the book. I want to talk about that first. My book. Your book. Oh, that's um, kind. Where did the inspiration and motivation come from to write it? Because you've written two books before, haven't you? Yes, they were novels. Bonk busters, basically. I was very excited when I got the first one through and it had a bumpy cover. Mm. Uh, but the idea about that was that they, um, yeah, they should be nice, easy, fun, entertaining reads. But this one is actually a work of non-fiction and it came out of my job, which was a kind of hybrid editorial advertising role, running a kind of editorial advertising division at News UK called Method. And I was going out pitching to brands and media agencies uh, uh, for our, our titles, The Times and The Sunday Times. And I should explain at this point that I'm 44. Um, and quite a lot of the people that read The Times and The Sunday Times are in my age group, 40s and 50s. Um, and all brands and media agencies were interested in were talking about millennials. And I was like, oh, millennial, millennial, millennial. Uh, <laughs> Those bloody millennials. Uh, get everywhere. Uh, And that was interesting because I had, previous to that role, been editor of the Sunday Times Style magazine for 12 years, during which time I had documented uh, the rise of uh, middle youth and its hold on the culture, youth culture specifically, and how we led everything. And suddenly I noticed that we no longer were leading the culture. In fact, it was millennials who were setting the pace. Um, very much so since 2008 when the um, sort of digital revolution took hold um, and all the financial structures changed and I just it led me to wonder what has happened to my generation Generation X and we're called Generation X because Douglas Copeland the amazing Canadian writer wrote a novel in 1991 called Generation Mm. X which summed up who we were at the time which was basically a sort of listless 
uh, youth movement that rejected an awful lot of the establishment around us uh, and weren't particularly interested in building careers but were just floating from one muck job as he called mm. it to another because I, I like the relationship between Generation X and Millennials I think it's a really positive one from my personal experience it's not always been easy and it's taken time to understand each other maybe in the workplace but on the whole I find Generation X are fun and cool and like n- not in a negative way but like so I have half brothers and sisters who are generation x they don't really at their age sometimes <laughs> like they're just cool no we hate our age <laughs> <laughs> we are obsessed with youth and cool and like we, you're the opposite of frumpy yeah <laughs> we love having fun you know it's interesting you say that boomers don't understand millennials at all and I think there's a real combative relationship between millennials and boomers you know millennials don't like the fact that boomers have all the money and all the houses and boomers think millennials are self-indulgent and spoiled and don't know how good they've got it and I think Generation X actually acts as a bridge between the two generations because we understand them both and I think we really appreciate and are probably slightly jealous of the fact that you know millennials have got their groove on and it's their world now and they are owning it Um, and in fact all we can do is learn from them. Mm. With the book writing and and also your job and your kind of quite high-powered roles that you've had in magazines why do you write books like you kind of wouldn't need to necessarily yeah the strange thing is as an editor you actually do very little writing Mm -hmm. you actually are always commissioning other people to do the writing you come up with the ideas and then you ask people to go off and execute them and there isn't much time really to sit down and write stuff yourself um And I have to say that writing this book whilst I was doing this advertising job was so much fun. It was like Mm. a sort of creative release because it was just... The nice thing about a book is you can just say what you think. You don't even have an editor telling you what to do and what to write. It's just your view of the world as you see it. And that's, you know, that is indulgent. How does it work with with writing this book? Mm. And when did you fit in? If you because you had a massive team, didn't you? I did have a massive team, and we were also in startup mode. So we, you know, we for the first year it was all as you know in a startup, mm. hairy scary, late nights, and you know having to you know put all the hours in and all the energy. And actually, it was during that phase that I got the idea for the book. Um, and then second year in with a startup, I always find is a lot easier we were much more established um, and I thought look I'd written two books before I know I can do this and also I know what I'm going to say and I think when you start on a book if you know what you're going to say it's so much easier to sit down and write it and it was just all in my head and it was all part of who I was so there was one part of it which was let us let me go and interview loads of interesting people from Generation X so that was people like Alice Templey, Alex James, Richard Reed, June Sopong all these great cool people that I knew from my time as an editor who I knew would have really good views on Generation X. So I went off and did loads of interviews with them. Um, You know, I just met them for drinks after work or coffee in the morning and we just had great chinwags and they were brilliant. Um, And then once I'd done that and I had all my material, uh, I thought, right, I'm going to write this book in three months. I'm going to get up at five o'clock in the morning because I'm a real morning person. That's when I love to work and when my brain is best. And I'm just going to do two hours every morning before the kids get up and I have to go to work. Mm. Anyway, it lasted about three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And then actually, brilliantly, my publishers who wanted the finished manuscript by March... Um, said actually no we're not going to publish it by Christmas we're going to publish it in the spring so you can have till September to write it and then that was great (laughs) so I did it mornings and I did it at weekends and I took holidays um, and that's how I wrote my books before I think if you 
can get into the zone. You can, you know, after a day of solid writing, your second day you write twice as much as your first day. Once you're in the groove and in the zone, you can really rack out the words. So yeah. So you could have times where you could switch off from work. Are you the type of person that could just leave your emails for the weekend, for example? Oh God, that thing about not pressing not pressing the internet button when you're mm. meant to be writing. Yeah, you have to be really self-disciplined about that. But I think once you're in the writing zone, uh, you don't want to leave it. I mean, I find that when I'm in the in the zone, then um, I can just get all the words out. Do yeah. you do? Is that the same for you? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm like a binge writer. Like yes, I'll, I'll do loads nice. in one day and feel really good, and then I'll do our bad days. Yeah. But it either comes out or it doesn't, I yeah. feel. Yeah. Um, but no, I think it's it's an interesting one. You know, like Alexandra Shulman writes books, doesn't she? And you kind of think like, well, how do you have time to be the Vogue editor? But of course you want to feed that want to write. It's why you got into the industry, surely. Yeah, I did think. I wonder if I can just skive off and sit at work at my office and write it while I'm at my desk. But that never <laughs> happened because obviously when you're at your desk... Uh, yeah, there's and so much plan office. Everyone comes up to you all the time to ask you a million questions. Yeah. So unfortunately, I I wasn't able to skive and write it. Because <laughs> yeah. being the editor of Sunday Times Style for twelve years, what were you like as the boss then? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a mean question. <laughs> the devil wears Prada thing. Yeah, it, is it fair that? That's what the stereotype is. Well, look, fashion is not a friendly industry. And, um, you know, fashion is all about saying you're in or you're out. This it is, is for thick-skinned people, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, and, and not. I think um, it's for mean girls quite a lot. Certainly in, our, in my day, um, you know, is you can't sit with us. Mm. That was how fashion, you know, that's how fashion works. It makes you aspirational to be in the cool gang and to go and sit with the cool gang. And funnily enough, when I went into fashion when I got the style job I had worked in news before then I'd never worked in fashion or style and all the fashion editors were really grumpy that I'd been put in at this level I mean most people who work in fashion have to work their way up from kind of cupboard skivvy running around doing the fashion editors dry cleaning and changing her handbags all the way all the way up and because I'd kind of worked my way up in newspapers on the news desk and then got moved sideways into fashion that hadn't been the case for me and I remember that first season I went to the shows and I'd been given a front row seat but it was always like a bit of argy-bargy about who sat on the front row and mm. they all had to kind of move up for me and they didn't like it at all and it was quite... That's literally you can't sit with us. Literally you can't sit with us, yeah. But, you know, fashion has become a lot more inclusive, you know... Um, Topshop started it. Designers at Debenham started it. It democratised the idea that you could wear designers. If, you know, people, everyone could afford to have a bit of good design, and why couldn't they? Um, and then, of course, when the bloggers came along, which the fashion editors hated, mm. still do, um, you know, that completely changed the model. And suddenly there were bloggers on the front row um, who certainly hadn't, you know, conformed to the way it had always been done before. Um, yeah, so where, where are we? What am I like as a boss at work? Um, I think the one thing that is really important is your ability to make decisions because you, at the end of the day, someone has to say yes or no. Um, and I think over the 12 years, I became really good at saying yes or no. And I knew by instinct um, very easily whether something was right or something was wrong. 
um, and how something should be done. Um, and I expect that was frustrating for people that work for me. But then on the other hand, I have worked for editors myself who can't make decisions, and that is even more frustrating, mm. I would say. My um, writers used to tease me uh, because uh, they would pitch me ideas and I would... If it wasn't right, I would just send them a response going, nah, N-A-H. <laughs> so I became known as the nah woman if it wasn't right. Um, but I think, um, you know... That reason... would have saved a lot of time, though. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I... I mean, the reason why I stayed at Style for 12 years was because it was just so much fun. Oh, my God. And, you know, the people who worked on the magazine were so hilarious and hysterical. For the first five or six years, actually, nobody left. We didn't have a single person leave the team, uh, which was really interesting. You know, we were just having a ball. We really were. It was so much fun. And, you know, even now I look back on it and just coming into the office in the morning, having a total gossip about mm. who'd done what, who, which celebrity had slept with who, <laughs> have you seen this, have you seen that? And then, you know, it would spin a million ideas that would end up, you know, in the magazine that Sunday. Um, and it was only through people kind of, you know, being funny and, you know, um, having loads of great initiatives and pointing things out that, you know, that was basically how the magazine worked. It was just everybody working on it was just really cool and funny and had loads of great ideas. Do you think that there'll be a day where people will feel really nostalgic about that? Because I, I love print. I, I, I buy, I do buy style every weekend. I buy a lot of magazines. I'm happy to spend £4.50 on Vogue. Mm. or however much it is do you think they're in danger or not because it is it's i tell you what split. the threat is is data um so if you are using data to inform creative which is increasingly the case as you know stranger things on netflix famously was commissioned off you know data what people were searching for on netflix you know a bit of 80s a bit of this a bit of that and that was how they conceived stranger things not that stranger things wasn't brilliant but editors work on hunches. We don't work on how many people read this, therefore we must do another piece like that. Mm. We actually lead rather than follow. So I always used to think the best feature in style was the feature that was in the idea that was in your head before you'd even said it. Mm. So you'd read it and you'd go, oh yeah, I think that. Well, I knew someone who did that. Mm. Um, and that is all about, for me, being clued into the culture and the zeitgeist and it's not served by data but then is trends and tapping into a zeitgeist is that not informed by online data we never use online data to inform our commissioning i'm sure now on digital in digital publishers that is exactly what happens but i know what you mean there's like a, there's you're taking away like the creativity of it and maybe bit. the human element of it. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think it's really key. It's leading and following. So you can, and this is the whole debate that we have now about living in self-fulfilling algorithms, mm -hmm. is you either serve people up the same thing that they could like looking at, or you surprise them with something different and spontaneous and serendipitous. And then that, that element of surprise delights them. And that's what makes you a real editor I think yeah I used to go on that old website called StumbleUpon do you remember that no where you basically gone I think maybe it's still running I don't know but you, it's just StumbleUpon.com and you click and it refreshes a random web page oh really so you just like find random stuff but that's I guess like yeah the opposite of the filter bubble of Facebook it's yeah. like when the election happened and it's like who voted yeah Brexit and it's I like didn't know anything everyone but your friends so yeah. that's because you didn't see it yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. But with them bridging the gap, in terms of your employees who maybe like wanted maternity leave or 
wanted um, certain things in life or were demanding because they're mm. millennials um, how did you did you feel like you could give them advice on that stuff yeah I, I mean I love millennial women I have to say I have worked with loads both at style and um, at method the advertising editorial division I um, I, I didn't find them to be the people that they're meant to be, which is, you know, kind of self-indulgent and short attention span and no staying power and demanding. I never saw that. The, the girls that worked for me, and it was mostly girls, were incredibly diligent, um, really willing to learn. Um, they kind of, um, you know, but also the thing that I really valued in them was that they kind of, they knew what's what, you know, and I, they got to a point, which actually it was after I had my first child and I was 35 years old and I went back to work at my style desk and all the things that I used to do, which was go out clubbing and go to launches and, you know, collect all my ideas by running around London and talking to interesting, cool people at interesting, cool events. I couldn't do anymore because I had a baby at home. Mm. And I realised the only way this is going to work for me as an editor is if I delegate this. So, you, you know, I need these girls and boys on my team to be my eyes and ears. They have to go out and do it and I have to listen to them and they need to tell me what's what and what's yeah. going on. Uh, and so in a way, I sort of lived my life slightly vicariously through them. And, you know, I became very observant of uh, who they were and what they were doing and how things were changing. And I wasn't experiencing it firsthand anymore. Um, but, you know, that experience of motherhood really forced that situation. I could talk about parenting in the magazine, you know, with some experience, but actually people weren't coming to style to read about parenting. They were coming to style to read about what was cool. Yeah. And with parenting, you, you have three children now. Yeah. How is that? How is three children? It is funny, though, how I think our, the millennial generation have to ask these questions because genuinely I would love that one day. In my head, I don't understand the logistics of how you do it. I think it's amazing what you, you do. Well... Emma, I mean, you, as you know, I did feature you in the book saying that you look at people like me and think, I don't want to be a parent. Um, and I think, I, just, I think I just look at it thinking that old phrase of I don't know how she does it. Well, look, first of all, the we, the Generation X, were the have-it-all generation, and I put that in big um, inverted commas because actually you can't have it all simple. You can have a work life, a social life, and a family life, but you can only have two out of those three things at any given time. And that was the big lie that was served to our generation. And we just charged into these great careers. And, you know, we were very lucky. We did very well in our careers very quickly because during the 90s, media exploded and everybody needed to promote women because there weren't any women bosses. So I did. I had a great time and did very well very quickly. And everyone was telling us we could have it all. You know, the sex and the city years were like, don't worry, you don't need to think about children, you just need to go out and buy handbags and drink Cosmopolitans and power your career up and <laughs> big, your big will come along soon. Mm. Um, and for many of us, big didn't come along. And also um, you can't buy a flat off one column. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carrie. <laughs> God's sake. Well, no, there's a, brilliant, there's a brilliant scene at the end of the, one of the last Sex in the Cities where Carrie wants to buy the flat she's renting and she realises she hasn't got enough money to buy it and then she looks at her closet and she sees all these oh. shoe boxes and she's like, oh, that's why. <laughs> Not that that would be the case now because you wouldn't have any shoes nor would you have the flat no. but um you rent them and then give them back surely <laughs> yeah, there you are. yeah so uh yeah anyway so the ones that managed to kind of nab their big before their fertility clock ran out and I was a lucky one of those um charged into having children at the same time as careers and I had no idea 
before I got into it what it was going to be like having children and having a full-on career. And I think if my husband had been earning loads of money, I probably wouldn't have gone back to work, which is a crazy thing. I was thinking about this only yesterday, actually. And I don't know whether that is good or bad, uh, but I certainly wouldn't have the career that I've got now and the job that I'm about to start on if I had stayed at home with the kids. Uh, but then at the same time, I have spent the last 10 years, and my eldest is 10 now, just running ragged around trying to hold everything together. Mm. You have these crazy days where you can't distinguish the importance, well, because it's the same importance, where you think, shit, I've run out of laundry powder. Uh, I've got this really massive pitch at work and I haven't done the deck for it. And um, when was the last time I saw my husband? Like three days ago? And those, and they, and these, the sort of micro moments when all these things collide, uh, and you don't know which one is more important. And then also, you know, you're just juggling so much in your head. You know, you've got one of them's got a packed lunch, another one's got to be picked up from a violin lesson, another one's got a play date. Then you've got to get dressed for work. Then you've got a breakfast meeting that you've got to make, and then you've got three thousand million things to do at work, and then you've got to get home in time to do the homework and. And that is just every day. And then the other thing is, you don't get any time off at the weekends either. So you come home on Friday and you all watch a family movie together and fall into bed, trying not to have too much wine so that you can have a good night's sleep. And then on Saturday mornings, you're just running around after the children because they're up really early and you, you haven't seen them all week, so you're desperate to be with them and play with them and have fun with them. And it's just exhausting. And then it happens all again on Sunday. And at the end of the weekend, you're exhausted. And then it's Monday. But, okay, big but, you are, I suppose you are having it all at your own expense, your own personal expense, but you're having all the experiences that life has to offer you. So if you are the sort of person who enjoys going out and getting things and wants to cram as much into your life as you possibly can and experience all the kind of wealth and wonder that love and life and family and work have to offer, then you must do it and you will make it work. You will tear your hair out and literally lose your hair, by the way. You lose your hair when you have children. It's a nightmare. I thought it went really glossy. Or is that when you're pregnant? Yeah, and then it all falls out and oh. some more. Yeah, it's horrible. Uh, anyway, that's by the way. Before I had children, I felt like I had a really wonderful, lovely, amazing life. And then I remember coming out of the maternity ward with my first child. And I was just experiencing the this wave of love that I hadn't even known existed and it felt just like I'd been living in this lovely house all of my life and I'd suddenly found a door in this house and I'd opened it up and there was a whole new wing to the house that I didn't know was there and it was a beautiful wing with a beautiful garden and this was going to be now part of my lovely life this whole extra lovely dimension and I mean, it's it's personal, it's totally personal, but I, you know, I feel very happy and lucky to have kids in my mm. life, but it's really hard work. <laughs> Women have different experiences of pregnancy. I, perhaps the reason why I had three children was because I had lovely pregnancies. I really enjoyed it. I felt full and fertile and mm. alive and, you know, it was very erotic being pregnant as well. Mm. I mean, I really, really, really enjoyed it because I just felt like I was inhabiting inhabiting myself in a way I'd never known before. Mm -hmm. And actually the other thing that motherhood teaches you, and I'm not sure you would get this from anything else, but it teaches you to listen to your own 
instinct, that thing, a mother's instinct, is a very real thing. And keep them safe. Yeah, or to just know and understand what the right thing is. And it doesn't just apply to your kids. You you suddenly start, you you learn the skill as a mum, and then you suddenly can realise that you can apply it to all sorts of things. It doesn't just have to be to the way you parent. It could be to the way you respond to everything in life. And I think I'm much more in tune with who I am as a person now than um, I used to be. Actually, Samantha Cameron said something really nice at an, in an interview at the weekend. She's Generation X. And so they were asking her the same question in the interview. And she said, she put it really nicely, she said, you get to play all these sorts of roles as a woman. You get to play the role of a mother. You get to play the role of a lover, uh, a boss, a worker, a friend, a daughter... You know, all these amazing things that you can be. And, you know, if you invite those things into your life, then you get to have them all. Yeah. I I definitely think living life to the full is very important. One thing, though, I do think millennials are good at is this trend of kind of, I know it's been teased a bit and mocked, but like self-care and like self-preservation and like looking after yourself. And I think there's been the wellness trend, which I know is like, I'm not into the whole green smoothies thing but on the whole I think taking care of yourself and there's nothing more important than health obviously because you you know otherwise it's all over maybe How... you guys do it too much though yeah and maybe that's the reason why you're scared about having kids because you think oh what will this limit me and mm. you know childbirth is scary you know pregnancy you're out of control um and then also you're too maybe you think too much about Doing too anxious. Yeah, too anxious. You <laughs> we always have anxious. this joke because I'm just a nervous wreck, and you're like, "Oh God, Emma, come on, chill out." <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yes. And I think so. I, 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 okay. So Generation X, my hypothesis is, came of age during the rave years, and in rave, you know, it was about hedonism, rejecting establishment and rules. And just doing what you, whatever you wanted, um, and kind of letting go, throwing your hands in the air like you just don't care, and letting go. And for me, that has been an abiding principle that has informed all the twists and turns of my life. I've just jumped in basically and done it, and then thought about it later. Like with your next career move. <laughs> like with my next career, I'm about to go to New York and move my entire family out there and start again in a different industry. Um, but yes, and I think I actually, you know, that is, I it's paid off for me so far, Touchwood. Um, and I think that you do have to, that uh, would be my advice to millennials, would be open yourself up to something that you think is scary and you can't control because actually that's the serendipity of life Mm. yeah oh well thank you so much um one last question i wanted to ask is um i know maybe you can't give too much away about your next move but what are you excited about this year i can answer that because i realized it last night i was talking to my husband about it so i when i hit 40 and the reason why i wrote the book was because i basically went straight into a midlife crisis (laughs) such a cliche but i felt really depressed i was no longer young i didn't know uh well actually the problem was i could see my whole life stretching before me in a sort of predictable boring fashion you know there i was with my kids in the terrace house in tufnell park you know, and I thought, I'm going to be doing the school run for the next 15 years, I'm going to be going to the same job, and I just thought it was so depressing and boring, and at the end of it, I would die. And what I really like about what's happened to me 
with this new job and with where I feel I got to in my head by writing the book is that I just don't know where we're going to be in a year's time. I don't know how we're going to be feeling or even where we're going to be living or the friends we're going to have or what we're going to be doing in the evenings or part of our lives or where we'll be going on holiday. And I've just I... got that excited like, goosebumps <laughs> yeah. for you. That's just, that is beyond thrilling and I feel mm. very grateful. So that's why you should open yourself up to the to the unknown yes oh my god I'm going to be emailing you next week and be like I've just booked a flight to Hong <laughs> Kong <Tim> too. <laughs> oh thank you and it, when is the book out again the book is out Thursday the 23rd of February HarperCollins and it's called Now We Are 40 Whatever Happened to Generation X and millennials what I would say is read it and then you'll know what's coming down the pipe for you when you turn 40 yes and it's I've read it and it's brilliant and also You've interviewed some really incredible people who I feel have given you very honest answers. Mm. So it's brilliant. Thank you.